This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandro. We should not hide away from our inconsistencies and imperfections. Imperfect as it might be, our union is both beautifully unique and uniquely beautiful. Those were the words of Ursula von der Leyen from her 2021 State of the Union address. The European dream has always nestled rather precariously between hard logic and a sort of romanticism. But is that balance beginning to be lost and the project to waddle off kilter? My guest today could not be better placed to help me answer that question. He's a professor at Loughborough University, London, and a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges. And he has just published a glorious new book called Circle of Stars that tracks the history of the European Union. Welcome to the bunker, Dermot Hodson. Thanks, Alex. Great to talk to you. Dermot, you decided to chronicle the history of the European Union, strictly speaking. Would I be right in thinking that this means you consider it quite a leap forward from the European communities that had preceded it, rather than a completely natural evolution? So it was a leap forward in, I think, several ways. So certainly in terms of its ambition, so it took the existing European community, which you've mentioned, and that was there since 1958, and it added three very ambitious projects on top of it. So the euro, also cooperation on foreign policy, and a common justice and home affairs policy. So cooperation in areas like migration. So that in itself was very ambitious and went a lot further than the pre-existing European community. But it was also different in terms of the political reaction to it. So public opinion was broadly supportive of the European community, and almost instantly from the moment that the Maastricht Treaty was signed, it was clear that something was different. There was yeah. instant pushback and contestation. So we saw the voters of Denmark rejecting the Maastricht Treaty at the first time of asking. We saw a very narrow yes vote in France. And we saw a contentious parliamentary debate in the UK, which briefly stopped the Maastricht Treaty in its tracks. So I think... The European Union was immediately different than its predecessor, both in substance, but both in how it was received. Does that mean you have some sympathy with those who say that the political nature of the EU was sort of foisted upon the UK, who only ever wanted a commercial relationship? So I certainly recognize that argument, but I think that is problematic in a number of ways. I think chief among them is the fact that the European project was always inherently political. So if we go back to the very first community, the European coal and steel community, 
This made no bones about the fact that this was a project, okay, in a narrow area of cooperation, creating a common market for coal and steel, but it was a peace project. It was committed to try and find reconciliation between European countries after the Second World War. So while I understand that Maastricht is different, I don't think it takes an economic club and turns it into a political one, although that argument was very common. You're quite obsessed in the book, in a good way, I say, <laughs> with Jacques Delors and James Goldsmith and their reactions to Maastricht. Why did you make them, in many ways, the protagonists of this journey? So it's interesting to hear about this obsession, apparent obsession. Well, I found the both really interesting characters. Now, Jacques Delors is remembered as this great champion of European integration, but actually one of the triggers for the book was reading a speech he gave in February 1993, and I start the book with it, where he expresses grave doubts about the European project. He had given his name to plans for the euro. He'd worked very closely on the relaunch of European integration in the 1980s. But for him, Maastricht was something very different. He was very frustrated with how the negotiations went. And he was deeply troubled by what he was seeing in Europe, particularly the Yugoslav wars. And so I wanted to start with a very different vision of, of Jacques Delors as someone who certainly was a committed European, but he had grave doubts about the European project. So I thought it was interesting to start with the Delors that we don't usually hear about. It was, you know, actually with both of them. They, they emerge from your book as much more complex characters than I had appreciated because in very many ways, I'm only aware of Delors up to Maastricht. <laughs> and then he sort of fades away from my consciousness. And I'm only aware of Goldsmith from Maastricht onwards when actually before he was also quite a different person than one might expect, right? So that's right. So to take the two parts of that question, Jacques Delors could well have been president of France in 1995. He was Europe's best-known socialist. He was polling very well, but he decided for reasons that were kind of mysterious to not run for the French presidency. So that explains in a way why he stepped back from the political limelight after he stepped down as commission president in 1995. Now, Goldsmith did change. So he was a pragmatic, pro-European businessman. He donated to the Conservative Party. He supported Britain remaining in the European Economic Community in 1975. But something shifted for him quite profoundly around the time of the Maastricht Treaty. So he wrote a book, which I, I start my book by talking about, where he turns on the European Union and starts to claim that something's very different after Maastricht, that faceless technocrats are trying to take over the European Union, that they're building a borderless Europe. So it's fascinating to see this sudden change in his political discourse, at least. And it's certainly a very, very successful move for him politically, because people want to hear these interventions in 1992. They want to see challenges to the consensus on European integration. So he becomes a very prominent figure in the media. And I think he'd always craved that attention, but perhaps not quite received it. So he settled upon this as the political topic that propelled him into the limelight. And he doesn't live much longer after this. He dies in 1997, but he is prolific in the intervening period. So he runs for the European Parliament, becomes an MEP, he starts a party in the UK, the Referendum Party, which wins no seats in 1997, but pushes all main political parties into referendum pledges. You suggest in the book that the seeds of both 
the appeal and the flaws of the EU are sort of embedded in the reasoning of the leaders who made it happen at the time, that in emphasizing the practical advantages of this club, not enough work was done on its philosophical coherence in in many ways, and to make citizens feel like stakeholders. It was sort of a decision that came down from up high. Why has that been left uncorrected for such a long time, when the reaction was very obvious very quickly? Well, I think they did try to deal with it. They just did it really badly. So (laughs) I think the leaders were aware of these problems of legitimacy right from that Danish referendum vote against the Maastricht Treaty. And Maastricht was unusual in the sense that it provided for its own revision very, very quickly. So there was a line in the Maastricht Treaty that said, well, there's a small number of issues that need to be revisited in 1996 and another intergovernmental conference. Now, this could have been dealt with very quickly. There were relatively minor issues. But EU leaders started to seize upon this as an opportunity to try and correct some of these political problems, to try and flesh out the political philosophy, as you put it. And they saw further treaty changes as a way to connect with people. So they tried to make the EU um, closer to its people, more relatable, to address the concerns that people had in mind. And they experienced an even bigger backlash. So this was especially true in the Nice Treaty, which was rejected in Ireland, in plans for a European constitution, which failed after referendum votes in the Netherlands and France, and in the Lisbon Treaty, which again saw a referendum vote in Ireland. So it's really interesting to see their decision-making in retrospect, which is people are frustrated with this treaty in Maastricht. Let's give them another treaty. And then they're surprised at Mm. that level of frustration. (laughs) So this was what's called a long constitutional crisis for the European Union, where they were desperately trying to get closer to the people, but the people weren't happy. But also what's quite interesting is that once the narrative had embedded itself that this is becoming more of a political animal and this is a problem, um, the more they tried to do to address its democratic deficit, its institutions, etc., the more it fed into that narrative that, look, it's becoming a sort of United States of Europe. And so they were caught in quite a vicious cycle in which I would argue they still sort of are. So it certainly turned into a vicious cycle with treaty revisions. So they, they pushed through so many treaty revisions in the 1990s and 2000s, which only made their problems of legitimacy worse. And, you know, if you look at the debate on the European Constitution, it was presented at the time as, as a way of showing the limits of European integration and to have checks and balances. And I remember one politician at the time saying, you know, uh, we shouldn't be scared about the idea of a constitution. Even my golf club has a constitution. You know What's mm. so threatening about the idea mm. of a constitution? <laughs> but of course, people who fear the European project see this as a form of state building, right? States have constitutions, and the constitutional moment for any political project is incredibly important. So they did get themselves into a kind of vicious cycle here. And I think you're absolutely right about the framing of this. So the EU is framed as having a democratic deficit. Whereas actually, it's got the world's only directly elected transnational parliament, the European Parliament. So there's a you know a big injection of democracy there. People are voting for the European Parliament, perhaps not in large numbers, but in increasing numbers. The European Parliament is getting more and more power in this period. Each of its states are democratically elected. And I think it's ultimately the heads of state or government 
who are taking the most important decisions. Hmm. So rather than pushing back against this and saying, well, actually, if we compare ourselves to other international organizations, there is a lot of democracy and there are checks and balances in the system. It's true that they kind of accept the premise of the criticism and then try to deal with it, but in ways that are, I think, ineffective and ultimately counterproductive. Now, we haven't seen treaty revisions since Lisbon. Lessons were learned there. But of course, that brings a certain constitutional rigidity. There are big question marks now about whether the EU can enlarge to take in countries like Ukraine without changing its decision-making structures. How do you change those structures without having referenda, which are hard to win, is exactly the puzzle that the EU is wrestling with. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We have to talk about Brexit. You put it down to three consecutive failures of leadership, in a way, Cameron's, May's, and Johnson's. Can you explain that a little bit? So what I found interesting about these three leaders is how they ended up with a Brexit that none would really have chosen. So David Cameron promised a referendum in 2013, really as a kind of election ploy. UKIP were rising in the polls, and he argued that, well, if you give us a, a majority at the next general election, we will take forward this plan for a referendum. So it was a very contingent promise. It wasn't clear at the time that he would necessarily have to carry out on that that pledge. It was so successful that the Conservatives are returned with the majority in 2015, and then he's no choice but to carry through on that pledge. So he finds himself in very uncomfortable territory, and he proves to be a very poor campaigner. I think there was a lot of complacency there after the Scottish referendum, They thought that economic arguments would prevail among voters. Of course, they didn't, and he loses the referendum. I think there was a sense that we're very good at winning referenda. Right. Whereas actually, Britain has had very few referendas compared to other countries. So this was a political class who largely didn't know how to to win referendums, Dominic Cummings being a notable exception. He had experience of the referendum in the Northeast on an assembly. Then Theresa May takes over as someone who was a very lukewarm Remainer. And I think her inclination would have been to have a soft Brexit. She certainly didn't want free movement, but she wanted a very close economic relationship in every other respect. The problem was that she was too constrained with her own party. So she calls an election, hoping to increase her parliamentary majority. And I think that would have given her the space to have a softer Brexit. Mm, And we all know how that went. Right, very badly. So she ends up even more beholden to Eurosceptics in her own party and ends up pushing a much harder form of Brexit. Now, Boris Johnson was someone who grew up in Brussels. He'd been a Brussels correspondent. He spoke warmly about certain aspects of the EU, particularly the single market. And he was against the idea of a referendum. He thought it was a distraction. Mm. And he was quite a pro-European mayor of London. Yeah. He takes the gamble, of course, that he can win the leadership of his party by 
backing a side that will probably lose in, in the referendum, yeah. that's leave. And of course, he then has to carry forward a type of Brexit that's so far removed, I think, from his statements, even after the referendum. He wrote a, a column in the days after the referendum, where he said that we'll have as close a relationship as we can possibly imagine. It was a very soft type of Brexit. And political positions harden, and he can only do this and get power and get Brexit done by having a really hard form of Brexit that's so far removed from his own views, I would argue. So you've got three prime ministers who gambled and lost. You trace the emergence of populist stroke nationalist stroke Eurosceptic politics back to that Maastricht period. And indeed, the ammunition they use to this day is anchored directly in the flaws of the structures that were created. Are those flaws reparable? Would that make a difference? Or is the narrative of a Brussels elite now so deeply embedded in the national psyche that it, it just taints the, the project forever? Well, I mean, the Maastricht Treaty is often presented as something that took the European Union in this dramatically different direction. But it's important to remember that it was ultimately a treaty that was approved by states Mm. Um, in accordance with their national constitutional traditions. And so that idea that it was foisted upon people, I think doesn't fit with the way in which that treaty was legitimated. Yeah. What was clear was that those traditional levers of legitimation had broken down. So if I take the UK to give a concrete example, the UK is a parliamentary democracy which has a tradition of putting treaties before parliament and giving a chance to have those debates. Maastricht was debated more than any other treaty um, in recent memory, and it was ultimately approved. So the UK approved that in accordance with its constitutional traditions. What's clear is that that wasn't enough. So it's not that the European Union was somehow foisted on states or the people, but there was something about the levers of legitimacy at the national level breaking down. So the fact that the UK ends up calling for a referendum even though it's no tradition of referendums, certainly not on treaties, tells us something that about what was going on within member states. And we can tell a similar story there about other countries. You know, if you think about the Netherlands having a referendum on the European constitution, that was the first referendum it had in 150 years. It's not surprising that when people finally get a chance to, to have a referendum, they say no, given what, you know, whatever the subject might have been. And so I think there's something you know going much more deeply than the EU and its contents, this is telling us something about its individual member states and the problems of legitimacy within them. And they leave their mark on the European Union in profound ways. At the same time, isn't the far right on the rise across Europe narrative slightly overdone? Um, look at, I don't know, Golden Dawn in Greece, which hit a ceiling and then fizzled out. Look at Poland recently. Look at the success of Portugal going completely in the opposite direction. Look at even at Meloni, actually, I would argue, and how she fell in line really from the day after her election and became a much more mainstream politician. So why do you think that narrative persists that there is a danger that the far right will take over the whole of Europe? I don't think it's overdone. I think politics have clearly changed over the last 30 years. 
in a way that's not always noticed. So if we take someone like Maloney, the fact that there is this narrative that she has somehow changed, that she's distanced herself from past comments, actually, I think, really distracts us from how much mainstream politics has converged towards her right-wing populism. Mm, mm. And so if we look at her recent trip to Tunisia with Ursula von der Leyen, Maloney's comment on this was, I see that there's been a convergence of views. She's surprisingly comfortable with the direction of yeah. migration policy. And I'd argue we, we even see something similar in Greece, right? It's like Golden Dawn failed in the polls, but there's certainly a right-wing populist narrative on migration that's very discernible in how the Greek the Coast Guard pushed back against migrants. Nevertheless, the book, despite charting a, a long list of criticism, is nevertheless, I thought, very optimistic. Because historically, the fact that you find again and again is that the European project changes, adapts, and survives. And I mentioned Poland. Is there hope lurking in that kind of development that when the threat from the populist right gets to a particular size of existential threat, there is a natural coming together of a resistance on the other side. So the EU has endured. And so, I, you know, I try and strike a balance in the book between criticism, pessimism, and optimism. And I think there's a kind of disaster narrative that accompanies media coverage of the European Union. Mm, with mm. every crisis, we're told it's on the verge of collapse. Oh, yes. That it's over. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, it's patently not the case, right? It's endured for 30 years. Uh, it's often been written off, but it, heads of state or government ultimately find a way to come together. They might not always make the right judgment calls, but they find a way to stand together in moments of crisis. Now, I think, so that's certainly a message of the book. However, I think there are dangers in saying that there's a kind of short circuit in national constitutions, which means when the far right or right-wing populists go too far, they'll be pulled back. If we look at Poland's election result, it's a minor miracle that Donald Tusk and the civic coalition managed to emerge as a government in waiting from that election, because by most standards, that was not a free and fair election, right? There had been changes to the electoral system that made it very, very hard for anyone to dislodge law and justice from power. And it took a concerted effort. And I think the talents of Don Donald Tusk as a mm, former mm. prime minister, a very savvy political operator to be able to pull off that election result. Even if he wins power, it seems likely, there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to reverse the direction of the rule of law being eroded. That's going to be a momentous political task. Law and justice still control the presidency in Poland. And so it's very difficult to turn those kind of reforms around. I'm optimistic about Poland. However, if you look at Hungary, its electoral system has been degraded to the extent where it's virtually impossible to imagine opposition parties dislodging Viktor Orban. And so, you know, we have to take each member state as we see it. And I think that we've seen a success in Poland for a kind of rebalancing of the political system is no guarantee that that happens elsewhere. And one of the most fascinating chapters of the book, I think, is where it charts Viktor Orban's sort of early years of almost fanatic pro-Europeanism, which I didn't know about, uh, I, I confess, was a, was a surprise to me. Mark Samuels wrote, once Europe had professed itself to be the embodiment of a spiritual ideal, now all its values are secular and materialistic. 
And I think you have a little bit of sympathy with that. You talk about the sacralization of free trade and the lack of focus on values and people. Has the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, in a way, been a wake-up call in this sense? Have they been a reminder, I think, to European leadership of what actually matters here? So I think they were wake-up calls of a sort. So if we look at COVID-19 and we compare it to the Euro crisis, you know better than anyone, as someone from Greece, the slow speed at which the EU responded to Greece's fiscal difficulties, Mm. the very problematic choices that were made, things moved very, very slowly. And this imposed huge costs on Greek society. That crisis could have been dealt with a lot more quickly. But when COVID-19 struck, We saw the EU moving and taking decisions in a matter of weeks that it took years to do in the euro crisis. So a very different sort of EU emerges there. So we see the EU with something like Next Generation EU, which is a program to borrow nearly 800 billion euros to provide grants and loans to member states to help them weather the economic storm of COVID-19. We didn't see anything like this in the euro crisis. And we saw the opposite, an emphasis on Greece having to get its own fiscal house in order. It gets financial assistance, but with very punitive conditions attached. We don't see this when COVID-19 hits. We see a coming together and a more understanding and value-driven sort of European Union. Of course, it was a very different type of crisis. And the Netherlands, among other governments, tried to have a similar playbook and say, well, you know, it's Italy's fault for not getting its house in order. And of course, that played really badly in Brussels at the time. And so we do see a very different response. And it shows that an EU that cares more directly about its citizens is possible. We see a different response also with Ukraine, where we've seen more than 4 million Ukrainians being given temporary protection in the European Union. That's in stark contrast to what we saw in the global refugee crisis of 2015, 2016, Mm. where there was a real sense, whether accurately or not, that the EU needed to protect its borders. There were very punitive conditions on, on people who were arriving in Europe under the most difficult of circumstances. It was different with Ukraine. People opened their homes and countries opened their borders to Ukraine. And the EU also broke new ground in providing military assistance to Ukraine too. It had never done this to a third country. So you could say that this is a kind of historical arc where the EU comes through crises, understands that it needs to manage them better. However, each crisis is different. So the most recent crisis is the war between Israel and Hamas. We've seen a reasonably divided EU there, at least in the early days of that crisis. And there's no guarantee that its coordinated response to Ukraine will lead to much more successful crisis management in the future. Finally, do you think there is a rejoined path for the UK? And what is it? What's the timeline for it? So that's a difficult question. It's clear to me that the Brexit deal is a hard form of Brexit that imposes all sorts of unnecessary costs on the UK and its relationship with the EU. So there is no doubt that there is scope for closer cooperation there in countless ways. So we pick something like Erasmus, a whole generation of young British students been denied the opportunity to go and study abroad to Erasmus, which has to be one of the EU's most successful programs. We think about musicians, you know, the red tape involved in British bands going to play at European rock concerts makes this virtually impossible. And they're just two examples of the many sectors that have been badly served by Mm -hmm. a hard form of Brexit. So 
I strongly believe that there's grounds for much closer cooperation between the EU and the UK in the coming years. I think it will take a brave politician to be able to address those issues and to try and put them right. I think the question of membership is very, very different. I think it would take a generation at least before a political class would be willing to think through the modalities of joining the European Union, what it would take to win a referendum, what sort of membership um, would they have in mind, how would you renegotiate the terms of membership. And, you know, if I look at how British politics has gone after Brexit, you know, Brexit was sometimes sold as that this was a problematic relationship. Once it's resolved, the UK will move on and find its place in the world. That's not what I'm seeing. I mean, right-wing populism has taken hold in this country. It's a period for British politics in which many politicians are still looking for enemies within, whether they're civil servants or migrants. And so it's not like Brexit has allowed the UK to regain a sense of confidence or stability in the world. That's still playing out. And until that plays out, it's impossible to imagine a very close relationship between the UK and the EU, much less talk of membership. Dermot Hudson, thank you so much for a great conversation. I have literally skipped over a page worth of questions. So I'm going to go ahead and call this part one and promise listeners that I will have you back because I have loads of stuff going forward. Thank you. Thanks so much. Circle of Stars, A History of the EU and the People Who Made It is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of former French Prime Minister Robert Schuman, one of the architects of the concept of ever closer union. Europe will not be made all at once or according to a single plan. It needs a soul, an ideal, and the political will to serve this ideal. World peace cannot be safeguarded without creative efforts proportionate to the dangers which threaten it. Perhaps then it is the threats we face today that can reheat the forge and reshape the metal. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreev. The producer was Chris Jones, and the audio producers were Alex Reese and me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.